This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm at Pray Eric Scopel with me as always, and... Today is Wednesday. We are going to open up the mailbag. We've got a bunch of questions, wide range of topics that are going to cover a lot of areas of Oregon Duck athletics, football, recruiting, basketball, you name it. We've got it all. Before we dive into the show, though, I want to remind you guys, hey, subscribe to DuckTerritory.com. You can get two months for $1 right now, and that gives you inside scoop on the Oregon Duck football program, basketball program, women's basketball program, the recruiting for both of those teams, all our coverage of spring sports, uh, spring football is right around the corner. Signing day, the second signing day for football is right around the corner. Make sure you take advantage of that right now. Also consider giving us a review on iTunes or whatever platform that you use to listen to the show. That's also very helpful. All right, three questions, or I guess we got six questions. Six questions, Eric. Uh, let's get Let's get going here. Man, it's always six questions. It's been from the start, so uh, never, never, never gonna just do three. <laughs> three in a break is the is the format here. Uh, first one from at MVH Genetics is the DC hire going to be the difference between a natty run and an eight and five season? Um, I well, first off, I don't think to me either of those scenarios seem very likely. I mean, I, I guess I could see them competing for a college football playoff. Part of me is also recording this a day after. Alabama and what they did with Ohio State, and I know a lot of those Alabama players aren't going to come back. But boy, um, that looks I think like Oregon's a-, a long ways away from keep competing with Ohio State. Yeah, oh, ex- Alabama. Well, that's what I'm saying. And so, I mean, I think I think it's pretty clear right now that it's going to take a ton for Oregon to get to that level. Honestly, um, the reality is, you know, I, I, this is just a short conversation on this, and just in terms of the, what it takes to get there. Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson have just continuously been on an ascent of bringing in, in you know, elite recruiting classes, staff continuity, you know, pro. And I, I know there's been some changes on those staffs. Ohio State's changed head coaches, but like um, those programs have since Oregon made its since Oregon had its downturn under Helfrich, those programs have steadily been in the national conversation every year, and you see how impressive those teams are. And I just think. You know, not to say Oregon can't win a national championship and that shouldn't be the goal every year and that they couldn't play for a cultural playoff because a couple of years ago they were close, right? They, they pro- don't lose to Arizona State, they might get in. I just think the more you watch it, the more I go like, that's not to say I don't think 2021 can be a special year. And I know I've said in the past that it could be a year where they do compete for that. But I think winning a national championship feels a little bit of a ways off right now. And to do that, they are going to need to continue to recruit at this level, which I don't think is an issue. And they're going to need to continue to develop players at a better level than what we've seen. So there's just that part. Like, I think, can they, can they be one of the four teams in the college football playoff in 2021? Possibly. Can they win a national championship? Like, I, I think it would be ugly against either of those teams we saw last night, and Alabama in particular. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, watched, I stopped watching at halftime because I, you know, I was tired of watching Devontae Smith celebrate in the end zone. I mean, that guy was in the end zone all day. Um, so, 
I mean, so, so there's that part. And then an eight and five year, um, that feels, that feel that would be very disappointing to go eight and five with everything that's back. But I would, I would say it's honestly more likely that they finish eight and five than they make a national championship, um, in 2021. Now to the, to the point about is the DC hire going to make a different, you know, the determining factor in that it certainly is a, a big part of the team, right? I mean, the defensive coordinator is the second or third most important coach on a team. Um, you, you, we, Oregon fans have seen full well how a positive hire can really improve things. I think Jim Levitt's first year, boy, the defense looked better. I thought obviously Andy Avalos's two years, the defense really improved. And we've also seen the inverse under Brady Hoke, where a really bad hire completely derails things. So um, certainly you can make an argument that hiring the wrong person could really have a negative impact. Absolutely. But I, I also think, like, let's say they hire someone who's about equivalent to Andy Avalos, which I think is, is the goal. I guess I guess it, this comes down to like what, what I mean. I'm just trying to think about like how to answer this question. Well, like, I, I don't think this program. I mean, are they are they really going to miss that? If they won a national championship in four years, I wouldn't be opposed to saying that's out of the realm of possibilities. Like, like I see that happening. Like you could you could sell me on that. Um. If you were to tell me Oregon in 2021 is going to win a national championship, then I would be like, no, probably not. Like, I, I, I have a hard time seeing that play out. I have – there is a scenario in which Oregon could maybe go out and get to the playoff in 2021, and then maybe in 2022 they make the, the, the championship game. And then maybe in 2023 is when they cross that threshold and they win it. Um, I think it's all about stacking and, you know, winning seasons on winning seasons and elevating the program and recruiting at a high level. And, you know, crystal ball is recruiting right now at a level in which you need to get to a national championship to win a national championship. You have to sign top 10 classes in the country. It, it, it's just a requirement. It, it you know, there hasn't been a team that's won it that hasn't signed multiple top 10 classes uh, over like a three or four year period. And Oregon has the sixth best class this year in 2021. Uh, in 2020, they were the 11th best class. So they're just outside that rank. Uh, and then in 2019, they signed the seventh best recruiting class in the country. And then in 2018, it was the 13th best. So you, if you look at this and think, okay, so in 2019, they signed the seven. In 2021, they signed six. If in 2022, they can go out and they can sign another top 10 class, they'll have the talent starting in that 2022, 2023 season, 2024 seasons to truly be a contender. I mean, it's, it's a requirement. You have to recruit at a high level. You just have to. And, you know, you can scheme and you can develop all you want, but if, you know, you can only go so far with those guys, with that, with that game plan until you hit a point where you just have to have the better player. And I think Oregon is getting to that level where they can say that they have, you know, a top 10 roster in the country every single year, 
but they're not there yet. Yeah, I think that's fair, Matt. I, I think to the question initially posed here, just about the importance of this hire, and this is why I want to start here because I think the hot button ticket right now with Oregon football is what's going to happen with the defensive coordinator. We obviously spoke quite a bit last week after Abelos' news was was announced and, and some of the possible hires that they could make there. Um, I do I, I do think you can you can say like this is a really pivotal hire for this program, and I I don't know I don't know if I really even. It's, it's kind of hard to address the could they win a championship or go eight and five. I think we've already done the national championship thing and kind of talked about that. But like, I'll just say this, like, I mean, I think Oregon puts itself in a position to certainly compete for a conference championship to be one of the best teams in the country next year with the right hire. And of course, if they have the, if they quote unquote sign the wrong hire, it could go the other way. But like, it's kind of hard to really get into these hypotheticals without really knowing who it is? Who the two coaches like? Who 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 coach A or which door A and what's door B and what about door C and you know all those things like we don't know what's behind those doors in part because we don't know like exactly what these alternative situations are and of course with the way reality works we'll never know exactly what this what if is so but I I do think it's it's worth noting that like yeah, I think this is a really important hire and if if they get this wrong it could be really impactful and if they get this right which I. Again, I think I feel really confident that Mario Cristobal is going to land a really good coach just based upon his track record. At yeah, I think, I think you and I both are under the same umbrella in which we have full confidence that Cristobal will, whoever he hires, will be a really good coach. All like, right, it'll be a, it'll be like I, I, like looking at his track record is, I, I would be shocked if it's not a home run hire. Yeah, and and the last two coordinating hires he's made have been really really good ones. Yeah. Um, Next one from at Benjamin Smucker. How much will scheme play into Cristobal's decision at the coordinator? Do you think they stick with the nickel long term? Um, you know, it's my it depends on who they hire. Well, I was going to say, and like, and I, like, I think, um, I think it's a hard question to 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 uh, to answer without Cristobal coming out on the record and saying exactly what he looks for in a defensive coordinator. Like, I guess we could go look back into 2018 vaults and see what was said prior to Avalos if we have quotes on that. But like, um, I think it's important to have some sort of scheme continuity. Um, I mean, I just think back to, I know we can talk about Brady Hoke, but I think, I mean, it's, it's the most recent example of just a total failure from a higher perspective. And I thought part of that was because they made a change from a three defensive lineman front to a four down lineman front. Um, and the roster, I don't think they did not have the personnel for it. Exactly. And you don't have the personnel. So I do think part of this does have to be, you want to hire, you want to hire a court. And this is just the way it works. You want to hire a coordinator that's adaptable. I think that was something that was really clear and something that um, Joe Mora spoke about at length. I forget exact quotes, but when he was hired, talked about how, some of this is going to be based upon what he's done at other schools. Some of this is going to be done based upon what we, what Oregon has done previously. And then another part of it is just like, what does the personnel really allow us to do? Because you don't want to be in a situation where, and I, I just like hypothetically, where you've got a quarterback who can't run and you put in an offense that requires the quarterback to run. Like if, if well, Oregon saw this a little bit, um, with uh oh, I'm blanking on his first name. Is it was it Brady Brady Leaf, right? 
like the quarterback yep. a long time ago. Yep. Yep. Who tr- they tried to run like option stuff with him, and he's just the dude couldn't nah. run, <laughs> and it was a disaster. And so like, um, I I you know, and it, that the difference between having a Marcus Mariota and somebody who runs like a five four forty is significant, right? And so you want so like defensively, sure, like I think. Part of this, I mean, I, I I would imagine anyone that they're looking at is somebody who's got experience coaching a variety of different defenses. Um, you can you could maybe make an argument. You bring in somebody who's a specialist who does something really unique. Like obviously, what Iowa State does, their three three five stack defense was something that not a lot of schools do. You yep. could maybe argue you find somebody similar to that and build personnel around it. But what you don't want to do is bring somebody in who is very set in their ways, enters at Oregon. And you immediately realized it's not, it's a clash between what the personnel requires and what the coordinator wants to do. Like, and I think anyone that Mario Cristobal is going to bring in is going to be smart enough and adaptable enough to make a change if they look at the roster and say, oh man. And we saw this with Andy Avalos, which I thought was a mark of a really good coordinator of like over time, the scheme even changed, right? Like, suddenly last, this yeah. last season, they started doing a lot more dime. They started incorporating more down linemen. They started incorporating, um, you know, different packages with linebackers because of personnel stuff. I think that's what you should expect based upon whoever they hire. Yeah, you said it really, really well. And I was going to just jump in. I don't have to go in too much into detail, but you need to hire a defensive coordinator that I think fits your scheme that you run right now. And maybe it has a little bit of an adjustment. Maybe, maybe they do more 3-3-5 three, three, instead of a 3-4, um, you know, wh- whatever. But maybe there's you're okay with a couple tweaks. Okay, but you want to fit something that fits your personnel. But you also want to find somebody that has the capability to adapt on the fly. And maybe in two years, things change within the conference where you you need to adjust your defense a little bit. And that coach has the ability to manipulate the defensive scheme a little bit. And you guys gravitate towards a different scheme. And over time, you can you can recruit to that scheme and not cost yourself what we saw when Brady Hoke showed up uh, in 2016. Yeah. <laughs> Cause again, that was a disaster. And I think that's a learning lesson. And I, I think Mario Cristobal smart. He knows what he's doing and, and he's not yep. going to bring in someone that's just going to say, we're doing this. And you go, uh, cause the interview process is very in depth and Mario Cristobal is a very smart person and a very smart football coach. And I have no doubt in my mind, if the coach, if, if you know, interview starts and ends with, I'm running this scheme regardless of what the personnel have. So he's just going to be like, yeah, it's not a fit. So no fit. sorry, but you're out. Yeah. So I, I think good question though, Benjamin, in terms of that. And then the, the, the nickel part as long-term, that part, I really have a hard time answering based upon just not knowing exactly who this is going to be. We'll have a better idea on that. I, I do think Oregon has the personnel here with Jamal Hill at that position, but I also think let's be real. Oregon could very easily, if they wanted to move back to something that doesn't include a nickel and maybe includes more traditional linebackers or some or something a little different um, with four defensive backs, that you could very easily slide Jamal Hill into the, the starting position that Nick Pickett, you know, kind of that free safety spot. Right. Or, sorry, uh, yeah, that's more of a strong safety spot that just opened up. Like Jamal Hill could fit there. I think Jamal Hill is clearly one of your best four defensive backs, and I expect he'll start. Um, whether that be at nickel or in some new role in whatever the defense looks like. So I think that's a good question though, in terms of just that role in general, I think the other part is the stud position, you know, the, the, an edge rusher spot that Mace Foon has played this this past year um, that Bryson Young played the year before that we saw under Andy Avalos that we even saw a little bit 
under Jim Lovett, some sort of variation there in the past. Um, those are the positions that I guess in theory you could see some sort of movement from if they did want to go four down or if they wanted to move to something that's just a little bit different. Because I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we do see something that is slightly different from what we've seen in the past. I and mean, that's just the reality of this. But it's hard to kind of answer those without knowing who the, co the coordinator is going to be and what his past history is on defense. Third one from at Smith Garrett 91. We are expecting the offense to be better and more consistent in the coming season. What type of statistics would you expect from the quarterback in order for him to have, quote, a good season? Where does the bar need to be set? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, I think it's a fair 5, question. 5,000 passing yards. Yeah. Heisman, <laughs> Heisman Trophy, no interceptions, 1,000 rushing yards. Uh, he needs to be Joe Burrow plus Lamar Jackson all in one. Um, no, I think uh, – well, I wrote down. I wrote down a couple of things here. Um, first off, uh, I just think the rushing part of things, and I, I didn't like write down how many rushing yards or touchdowns, <laughs> but like I thought, Oregon's offense was at its best early in the season. When go for it, yeah. When when we saw Tyler Shuck running and in, in running for eighty yards in games and getting into the end zone with touchdowns, and we didn't see that much towards the back end of the season. Anthony Brown, of course, ran into in the uh, festival, those Oregon's two touchdowns were, were on brown runs. But like, uh, I, I think in a traditional season, which I think we're expecting in 2021, like maybe 600 yards rushing would be great from a quarterback and eight to 10 touchdowns. Like that's really, really good stuff. Um, you know, that's right. There's like 50 yards rushing a game and a touchdown, you know, every few games. Um, I think another important thing I always look at is, is just the turnovers and obviously keeping the fumble numbers low, which was an issue for Tyler Shuck. Um, touchdown to interception ratio. You look at Oregon when it's been at best with quarterback, the rate has been about seven to one, seven touchdowns to, to one interception. So like 35 touchdowns to five picks or, you know, 42 touchdowns to six picks, something in that range was really, really good. Of course, five to one's pretty solid too. You know, I mean, you think about five to one, if they threw 35 touchdowns, that's seven picks. That's not, that's not bad either. Um, but you want, you certainly don't want that rate to be like, two to one or one and a half to one. Cause if you get to that range, that's where you start having problems. Um, and certainly we saw Tyler Shuck's number, which was at one point, you know, like three to one dip, you know, get worse and worse over the end of the season. So um, that, that, that I think is something. And then from a passing yardage perspective, I think about 250 plus per game. So again, over a 12 game season, what is that? Like 3000 yards? Like, and again, like some, some of this is going to be contingent upon, maybe some of the changes or kind of what the offense looks like exactly. But um, cause I do think it could adapt and, and obviously the personnel portion of this, but I, I think a quarterback that can run the football effectively, a quarterback that protects the football and a quarterback then can consistently, and maybe it's not even just the yards per game as much as it is consistently hitting that sort of a threshold. Because what we saw under Tyler Shuck was some really big games throwing the football and then some games where he just really struggled to gain much of anything through the air. I think you you look at quarterback rating and I know that's not the most that's not the perfect way to look at quarterbacks but just look at the top 20 top 15ish type quarterbacks over the course of the last 4 or 5 seasons and you know Tyler Shuck was in the top 20 this year top 15 actually he was 15th um, but look at the that the teams, you know, 
when you look at the teams though that that have won champions, 2019 Joe Burrow led the, the country in quarterback rating. Uh, in 2020, Mac Jones of Alabama led the quarter the country in quarterback rating. Tua in 2018. In 2017, Baker Mayfield led the country in, in quarterback rating, and he was in the college football playoff. Mackenzie Milton, uh, undefeated season for the UCF Knights. He was second in the country uh, for quarterback rating. 2016, Mayfield again. I think they were in the playoffs again for Oklahoma that season. Um, 2015, Vernon Adams actually led the country in quarterback rating. And if it was if it wasn't for maybe that Michigan State loss, you know, Oregon potentially could have been in there. And then, you know, in 2014, when you look at the quarterback rating, Marcus Mariota and JT Barrett, one and two. Those two teams played for the college, you know, national championship game. And so when you look at when you look at this season upcoming and what do you want? It's saying you need to lead the country in quarterback rating is far too outrageous of an ask. It's a lot. But, <laughs> it's a lot. But if Oregon wants to have the goals that they have and you want to compete for a college football playoff berth, you need to have a quarterback that's in the top 15-ish for quarterback rating. You know, your, your completion percentage needs to be good. Your, your yards attempt needs to be good. But the reality is your quarterback needs to be efficient and needs to be able to make the plays when needed. And you got to have a guy that's in the top 15 or so. And, you know, Oregon had a guy in the top 15 this year. I'm not saying Tyler Shuck showed me where it was like, yeah, he's definitely the quarterback to be, you know, the guy that takes Oregon to the college football playoff. I don't, I don't know that, but I've seen enough where I think he could do it, but I've also seen enough where I don't know if I, I feel like he's not the guy too. And so you want some stability there and I, I, less worry about stats and more worrying about we want the consistency that we saw from Tyler Shuck week one to week three, opposed to what we saw in games four, five, six, and seven. All right. Next one from at ha 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 he he underscore 21. Um, heck of a Twitter handle right there. Um, for various reasons, we haven't seen a fully polished and consistent offense under Cristobal yet. What is the biggest hurdle remaining to achieve that? What is CMC's vision of a perfect offense? And how far off is that for Moorhead's offense? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, the first thing that came to my mind is just like continuity from a coaching perspective of, I mean, I know Marcus Arroyo was at Oregon for three years, right? Two years mm -hmm. under Taggart or a year under Taggart and two under Cristobal. Um, it was pretty clear, I think, towards even the middle part of that, even honestly, even kind of early that he wasn't an elite coordinator. I mean, he's now at UNLV and is a head coach and more power to him. Maybe he'll do better in that role than he was as a coordinator, but I think there were some flaws there. Um, and so, like, I think it's hard to expect to have a, you know, a perfect offense or a fully polished, consistent offense when the coordinator is not an elite guy. And I think Joe Moorhead is the much closer to that than Marcus Arroyo is. Um, and so you ask what, why are they not fully polished and consistent in 2020? Well, I mean, part of it was a huge part was quarterback play, but another part was the fact that they were breaking in a new offense with a very different off season, a condensed off season um, and a shortened schedule. And I think this is a part that 
like usually you when are you usually seeing the best games of a season it's like the back back games like 10 through 13 or 14 if you play at a conference championship in a bowl game is when the team really is is at is really running on you know at, at its highest level and Oregon played seven games they didn't even get close to reaching that number to really get there and so I think this polished consistency thing we're talking about like I don't disagree at all that it was inconsistent, that it wasn't fully polished, that there were lots of faults. And I, but I also just think it has to be at least acknowledged that like they didn't play enough games necessarily to get those reps in. So like that also has to be quote unquote noted as a hurdle to have achieved that in 2020 and going into 2021 is just, there was a, a lack of opportunity to do that. And we saw, I mean, Hey, like we talked about the, the national championship game and, but like part of me thinks the reality is uh, Alabama played, I think 13 games and I believe Ohio State played eight. And I think those kind of th- that kind of thing matters. So I know that's kind of like a more like a myopic perspective on this, like more of a just a s- small picture thing here in terms of why it wasn't perfect this year. But I think it's important to note that like this was an offense that that was going to take some time to get rolling with new quarterback, so much new offensive line, a new coordinator. And you just, you, you know, it's like you were, it's almost kind of one of those things where like if you're running a race and you start picking up full speed around the 60 meter mark and it's supposed to be a hundred meters and the race just stops and you're, you know, you never got exactly to where you needed to be. You never got a full head of steam. I kind of think that's what happened with this offense. Um, I think you also could argue that they just flat out haven't had the personnel to fully operate the offense in the vision that they have for this this year, this year in particular, right? I think last year in particular too, they didn't have game breakers at the receiver position, whether they were healthy or not on the roster, their running back position. Verdell was hurt half the year. You know, he, he could never finish games. And then this season Verdell got hurt and they had an offensive line that was being, you know, shuffled in and out and they were having to readjust and they had tight ends that were, you know, they had one tight end for like two games and then their receivers were constantly being pushed in and out of, uh, out of the rotation. You know, they haven't had a consistent offense. They haven't gone a year. Uh, it, it's, it feels like Eric since 2014, really that the Oregon offense hasn't had some kind of major injury where a position group is just completely wiped out. Like, or, or there's constant shuffling. Yeah, no, I think that that's fair too, right? I mean, and and that's where we should have optimism about continuity here. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting from a receiver perspective that we haven't heard anything from Johnny Johnson or Jalen Red yet, right? I mean, I think we both kind of had anticipated there'd be something announced. It's now January 12th. Uh, you listen to this on the 13th, and it's like those guys come back. That adds a little continuity there. Mm-hmm. Um, the offensive line should, we think, get – get better this year. Um, obviously the quarterback position is the big wild card running back. It's kind of weird to say, I think running backs, the second biggest wild card, even though you return like potentially three guys with a ton of experience um, at running back. So no, I, I agree with that from a personnel perspective. And then in terms of the vision he has for a perfect offense and how far more heads offense is off from that. I think this is another one that's a little bit kind of similar to the defensive coordinating thing in terms of like, I think Cristobal's vision for the offense is, is hopefully very synonymous for whoever his offensive coordinator is. Um, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to go out and hire 
an offensive coordinator if you just don't think his perspective aligns with what you want. And if you don't, that coach probably isn't going to be around very long. I mean, it's similar to like if you were to go, Matt, Matt just did this, Matt's about to move, you just, you know, but go buy a house and you're like, well, actually, it doesn't fit any of the amenities I need. <laughs> why, why, why did you just go buy it? Like, what was the purpose in buying that house if it's just like not close to what you wanted? So, I mean, I would hope whatever Cristobal's vision is, and he's talked a little, I mean, he, he certainly wants to establish power run game. He wants to be big on the line of scrimmage and dominate there. That's certainly a part of it. And he's brought in a coach that has a history of, of doing that, but also a history of finding some ways to win on the outside with getting athletes in space in Joe Moorhead. So like, I, I mean, my perspective is, is, as I hope, if this, if this relationship is going to last very long, You'd hope Mario Cristobal and Joe Moorhead's vision for a quote-unquote perfect offense or the offense they run, want to run at Oregon is pretty aligned because if it's not, then there's going to be some problems, like point blank. Like, 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 like my analogy about a house, it's just like, why would you devote time and effort into, to, to, you know, to, and money <laughs> into something that is just not what you want? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. From at Hagen one Steve, what kind of shape is the athletic department budget in at this time? Um, well, it's not great. Uh, <laughs> not great, Bob. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I mean, the reality is here we haven't spoke with Rob Mullins. I think since prior to the start of the season, there were some figures that were um, that were released, and uh, they were pretty pretty demoralizing numbers. Um, I mean, we're talking about budget losses and net losses upwards of 50 60. to 80 million. Yeah, yeah. 50 to 80 million bucks. So, um, you know, I, I, you asked that question. I, I wish we had the numbers from Rob Mullins. In fact, I would imagine now that 2020. We'll probably is, speak to Mullins here in the next couple months. Yeah, I was going to say, I would imagine they do probably have updated figures here. I, 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 um, I pulled here's, up. Go ahead. Here's the thing like, they are, um, they're trying to find any ways possible to generate money. One of which is the fan cutouts at arenas from at night arena for women's and men's basketball games. They did the same thing for football games. Um, if we get spring sports, they'll probably do the same there for softball, track and field, baseball. Um, those sports are, I believe on track to be played. Uh, they're also trying to figure out ways to make money. Like they're, they're promoting a, a national signing day, um, virtual meeting with the coaching staff that comes up next month and you donate a hundred dollars and you get a VIP box with some surprises that are included in it. Don't know what's in it, but you know, they're just getting creative right now to find any way possible um, to generate income. Uh, I, I know that, you know, my parents texted me if I wanted to buy season tickets for my two boys uh, and they had told me that, you know, tickets have gone down in price uh, and in some areas considerably. And it feels like they're taking the approach. And this is just my speculation of the, that conversation I had with my dad and the, the prices that they were going to pay. But it, it feels like more so of, Hey, let's get as many people in and we'll generate tickets. You know, we'll generate more money off, you know, parking and concession uh, sales and, you know, go to the duck shop before or after the game and an upgrade for tickets and whatnot. Let's just get a lot of people in very similar to what they did for the women and to the men early on um, in, in terms of just pack the place and, and 
get people back in and then we'll, we'll worry about pricing later. Yeah, it's going to be rough. I, um, I, 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 obviously you hope this turns out and they find a way to bake some of this money back, but the reality is it's going to be a struggle and the projections that were released last, um, were, were suggested with the season starting after January, I think was the last figures we had. Um, so those are kind of, you kind of toss those out the window. Obviously the season was played then, but with no fans, I mean, the, they, they did, they did suggest that if you could play football and other sports with fans, the night loss would be $56 million. Well, obviously it's not happening. And if you would play football post January one, which didn't happen. So this is a little bit off the, but without fans, that number jumps to 65 million. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is big money lost and that's the unfortunate reality. We should also note Oregon, signed extensions to two of its highest paid and athletic employees in the last yeah, I month. I feel pretty confident there. Right. I mean, I thought that was kind of telling, obviously the Mario Cristobal thing you needed to do, but I mean, I, I, Kelly Graves, I just posted the, uh, the, 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 the figures on his new contract, which runs through the end of the decade. Um, he's making upwards of, well, not upwards. He's making over a million dollars every season during that stretch. It's going to make him one of the more highly paid women's basketball coaches in the country. Still won't touch Gina Arayama's $2.4 million a year deal, but um, Graves will be making, you know, between $1.1 and $1.3 million for the entirety of the decade. So um, some confidence, at least from the staff, from the program internally to, to, to make those sort of decisions to, to not only extend those coaches, but to give them pay bumps. All right. Close out the show with this one. I always love these sort of questions. So a good one here from at Drew Goley. Who's the biggest what-if decommitment in football and men's basketball in the past 10 years? Hashtag odds and audibles. Again, for those listening, if you haven't listened to the show, if you, uh, if you want your questions asked, use the hashtag odds and audibles or answer in the thread, which I post a couple times a week on Twitter, usually on Monday or around Tuesday morning. Um, so actually, Matt, I wanted to do – I'm not sure if you've done the same research, but – there were only two men's basketball decommitments since 2011. Did you look at this, Matt? Do you know who yeah, they are? There's not very many of them. They haven't lost a lot. I was going to quiz you unless you already looked at the names. Uh, I, I haven't looked at the names. Um, boy, I, I mean, it's so rare. I, honestly, it's like one of those things where I, I can't even recall who it was. All who, right. So- who was it? It was Ray Casongo in 2014. Ends up okay. at ten- Tennessee. I think I don't even know if he played at Tennessee. Actually, I can't remember. I think what he played was. one year, transferred, didn't do anything. Yeah, quite a career. And then the other one was very similar career path. Jaquan Lyle in 2015, who ended up at Ohio State. That's and right. I think bounced around mm-hmm. a little after that. So like he couldn't you know, get into school at Oregon. Yeah, and so like that decommitment like has an asterisk next to it. So for men's basketball, and then we'll get to football in a second. But men's basketball, because neither of those guys are that big of a what if from a decommit. I thought the recruit that. I would argue kind of decommitted because it was rumored he was going to pick Oregon. And I think Matt knows what I'm talking about would be Jamal Murray. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who I was going to actually suggest, cause there's not very many of them that we do more of like what commitment, like what player did they miss out on that could have been game changing? I feel like Murray would probably be there for me yes. as well. Just because of like, you think about, Oh, you think about the roster that he coincides with at Oregon and how close they were to, they were on the doorstep of winning a national championship the year. Same class as Tyler Dorsey. Could you imagine Jamal Murray yep. and Tyler Dorsey as freshmen for Oregon on that roster? I mean, they were really, really close. And obviously Jamal Murray has gone on to be, I don't know, one of the 25, 20 best NBA players right now. I mean, he's yep. a really, really good player. And if you had a player like him in the program, 
boy, um, gosh, that would have been something else. So like, did, was there another player or two that you wanted to mention on the, yeah. Like I, I think if you go back a couple years prior to that, um, I, I think one that doesn't get talked enough about, and I've said it a couple times, but I, I feel pretty strong about the fact that if Oregon hired Dane Altman shortly after Ernie Kent was fired uh, mm-hmm. and that coaching search didn't drag out over a month's time and they were able to go in and get Altman hired a week after, I think Terrence Jones and Terrence Ross both end up playing at Oregon and, and, Jones doesn't go to Kentucky. Ross doesn't go to Washington. And that could have accelerated the growth of this program tenfold. Um, Another one in 2013 that I think Oregon was very close in getting, but just could never get over the top um, was Aaron Gordon of Arizona, five-star number three player in the country. Oregon tried like heck. They were very close to getting him, and they were also very close to getting Marcus Lee from California, another five, uh, five-star center or power forward who went to Kentucky. I think if if in 2013, if had they signed one of those guys, Oregon may have had a national championship because that was the same year that, that Elgin Cook joined the team as a sophomore. Um, so you're talking a roster in 2013 that had artists, had Dotson, uh, it had Moser, it had Johnny Lloyd, it had Jason Caliste, had Elgin Cook. You throw in an Aaron Gordon into that mix, and now all of a sudden you have a loaded team, uh, and you, you are positioned yourself where you probably are a one seed. So that, that would be one that I would look at. Football, there are definitely some more names for this yes. that are, that are interesting. Um, a lot more decommitments. I think I, I didn't totally, I didn't like count them in a tally, but I, I think it was at least 30 since 2011. There are a couple of years where there were no decommitments. And then a couple of years, I think largely during coaching changes where you saw like seven to eight. And I think the Willie Taggart year was, I think 10. Um, but a lot of the guys that decommitted really were pretty minimal impact players at other schools. Like you go yeah, look at, we talked about that like la- a couple of podcasts ago. Like there hasn't been a lot of guys that have committed and left and done big things. So here's, here's two that are really, that stood out a lot. And the first one is Johnny Manziel in 2011. Yeah. Uh, went on to win a Heisman, obviously didn't do anything in the NFL, but like same recruiting class as Marcus Mariota. I even did a full what if story. I think it was two summers ago. Um, I did I did a series of the biggest what ifs in Oregon sports histories. And one of them was what if Manziel and Marcus Mariota had both arrived at Oregon at the same time, what could have happened? Um, I also did like an alternate, what if Manziel had stayed committed, but Mariota had been the one that decommitted and gone to Washington. I did all these kind of like funny little kind of theorizing what would have been different. Um, But Manziel at Oregon at the same time with Mariota would have been really wild. And yeah, it would have been really crazy to think, um, gosh, I mean, I think, I think we'd all agree Mariota would, would have still won the job most likely, but boy, like that would have like, I mean, the, the Mariota versus, well, first maybe Manziel red shirts and doesn't leave. I mean, I don't know. That's, I think that's probably a little out there. Um, but I, maybe he surprises, a, pulls a surprise and, it's like, hey, like this 
this guy's really good. I'm going to wait my turn and, and, and stays, stays at Oregon. I, I don't know, but that, that I'm with you. I think, I think Marcus wins the job regardless. Okay. So there's one for me. And then the other one, and then I'll, I'll toss it to Matt if he has any others that stood out and, and kind of thinking about it. The other one that's pretty obvious. And I know we did mention this in like a podcast over the summer of the 10 biggest recruiting misses. I think it was maybe five, five biggest misses or five best commitments and five worst. I forget, but Buda Baker goes from, from Oregon to Washington, okay. obviously goes on to have a really, really good career with the Huskies. He's now in the NFL where he's, he's also playing at a very high level. Um, just a player that Oregon, and I think this was a real sliding doors moment, not that his recruitment, like you can look back and say, boy, like if, if he ends up at Oregon, they don't have the 2016 season goes totally different, et cetera. But like, it was kind of an interesting moment there where he decommits and goes to Washington. Washington then takes a huge ascension and Oregon goes completely the opposite direction and a lot of other factors, but has to be noted that that was a player who was originally going to be a headliner in that recruiting class winds up going to Washington. And, uh, and again, you saw kind of what happened in the years after of, of how that impacted things. Oregon was really bad for, I think basically the entirety of Buda Baker's time um, with the Huskies and you kind of wonder how things might have shifted had he been at Oregon. And at the very least, he would have been a player I think we'd be talking about now as like one of the the best defensive backs Oregon has had over the last decade. At the very least, that would be a conversation to be had. Maybe on some bad teams, but he'd certainly have that kind of career, I would have thought. Um, one other name, and it ended up not really hurting Oregon too much, but Jared Maiden. Oh, yeah. Four-star cornerback. He was committed to Mark Helfrich as part of the 2016 recruiting class. And then as Oregon's season kind of tailspinned out of control, you know, hit, you know, other schools came in and it was going to be tough to hold on to him regardless. Um, but when Oregon had that year in 2016, that made it, you know, nail in the coffin. He wasn't coming here. He ended up playing for Alabama. Uh, he's currently on the 49ers as a rookie right now. Um, was a was a guy that played all four years for the Crimson Tide. And look, you know, Oregon signed Yamade Lenore and Thomas Graham in that same recruiting class. Uh, but I have a hard time looking at it and being like, yeah, having an Alabama defensive back isn't that big of a deal. We don't really need him. It's okay. Like they would have found playing time for Maiden and Shoot, maybe it, maybe it would have redshirted Thomas Graham or Diamond Lenore, um, or maybe it would have redshirted somebody else like a Javon Holland the next year because Oregon could could play those three guys, and it creates just a little bit more depth. Which now in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, they need some depth at at cornerback. Yeah. No, I think that's a good one. I think another, another one that didn't actually commit, but if you could have had the recruitment go differently, and we talked about this originally too, would be just Talanoa Funga. Yeah. Not a decommitment because he never committed, but certainly a player you go, boy, if he would have been at Oregon right now, that defense, that position, which I don't want to say Nick Pickett was the weak, weakest part of the entire defense. I think that's maybe a stretch, but it would have been an upgrade to have an All-American at that spot. And Imagine at least a couple of years of Javon Hollins and Talano Hafunga at the back end just whew, would have been special. But again, that's, that's what makes these kind of what ifs interesting. And um, you kind of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of these are kind of, I mean, Oregon hasn't been, 
They haven't. They've, they've really not lost that many decommitments that have turned out to be much, right? I mean, we, no. you look through the numbers. I bet the, you, if you were to go through it and then post how many of these players that have decommitted since 2011 have gone on to be all-conference players in other conferences, I think the list is probably like three to four guys. So um, there's not a huge list to pick from, but certainly worth noting. And I think the the, the men's basketball one is is one where you just have to – there are so few decommitments um, that you just kind of have to, as we said before, look at some players that were close misses rather than decommitments themselves. That's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for listening to the show. We will talk to you later this week. Talk to you later, folks. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.